This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Well, welcome to Playlist, a series where for a few weeks we're taking modern songs and using them as a platform to talk about a few books in the Old Testament from a group that we call the Minor Prophets. Just to get started today, I I just want to remind you that we here at Vortex exist for people like you. Uh, We want this to be a place that when you come in on a Sunday morning that you leave feeling built up, not beat down. We, We want moments like this for you to sense that God is indeed for you, that he desires good things for you. And you know, I, I believe that over the next few weeks as we look into the Old Testament and some of these more obscure books, Obadiah, what we're looking at today is one of the shortest books in the entire Bible. I think that what you're going to see is that God truly, while, while a lot of times the truths are hard, they're not easy, they're difficult, they're, they're painful, there's good news in them. And today, I, I, I want you to see that today. I, I want to go back through just and review a, a little bit of the setting for where we are. The Old Testament in general proves about God that, that God is both loving and just. And this is a tension in our world. We, we kind of feel like, well, how can I, be, can I be loving? Or do I have to be just, you know, and the truth is we can be both. We, we don't have to choose one or the other. God shows us that we can be loving and just, that his justice is, means I can love somebody intensely, but not dismiss their sin. And a lot of times we, we feel like, well, you know, to be honest, I, 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 I can't be loved. No, it's, you can be loving and just. And God shows that because his people throughout the Old Testament rebelled against him. God would say, do this, and they would do it half-hearted and, or not even do it. And throughout that, God raises up a series of prophets. It starts well before even the prophetic writings with uh, Samuel and, and Nathan. And then we kind of journey into the major and the minor prophets. What makes a major prophet major was just that they wrote the kind of the largest amount of the prophetic writings in the Old Testament. That would be Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, who not only wrote Jeremiah, but wrote the book of Lamentations, and then Daniel. These are the major prophets. But a major prophet was not more important. They just simply wrote a majority. That's why they're major. The minor prophets, though, did what all prophets did. They shared the word of the Lord with the people of God. God raised them up in different times and for different purposes to share what God was speaking to them through them to the people of God. There are 12 books in the Bible 
that we would classify as minor prophets. They're going to come right at the end of the Old Testament. Some of them are very familiar. The book of Jonah, which some of us have learned about in vacation Bible school. Jonah, who hears from God, go to Nineveh, and I want you to tell them that I'm going to judge them. And he doesn't want to. If you know anything about Jonah's day and age, it was actually a, a national issue because the Assyrians, which is where Nineveh was, had conquered uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. The, he, he didn't want to go. He, he didn't, it's kind of like somebody saying, you know, I know you're from Ukraine, but go and go to Russia. And, and he's like, no, I don't want to go. I, I, I know you're good, God, and I know that you'll be merciful. And, and, and God gets him there, you know, the story with the fish and and then he proclaims what God does exactly what God said, and they repent, and there's a revival that breaks out. And at the end of the book of Jonah, you find Jonah all huddled up, mad because God was not just just; God was just and merciful. That's who God is. And last week we started the series by looking at the book of Micah, and we saw that in a time of economic prosperity and increasing disobedience. Micah invited the people of God to live justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God as the world changed around them. Sounds simple, but I, I tell you what, a lot of us could use some introspection on just that simple verse out of Micah 6 8 to remember all the good things that God has done, to walk humbly, love mercy, and, and, and live justly. We, we, could, we could spend some time reflecting on that. Today we're going to look at the book of Obadiah. And the, the word or the name Obadiah actually means one who worships Yahweh. It's actually remarkably short and a little contextually confusing. There's little known about the author. And most of the minor prophets, you, you know, they didn't have last names then. And so the way that you would kind of differentiate between I'm the, you know, the this and this, or I, I'm the, the Jan, but, but no, I'm Jan's son, daughter of, or I'm Jason's son of. And so if you read through most of the minor prophets, they'll introduce themselves by saying, I'm Joel, son of, but Obadiah does not. And as a matter of fact, there's, it's, it's a little difficult to date it, but what we do know is kind of what has happened around the events that lead to this. Now, this prophecy concerns the Edomites. And to understand where we are and to understand this book, you've got to understand a little bit of history that gets you there. So I want to show you a map. You would know this as being modern-day Israel. And so the people of God come together, and they, they take this land. This is God's promised land to them. And then they form the kingdom of, of Israel. This is God's people. But before too long, and y'all hear me, Satan's plan is to divide what is united. So you have a king, Saul, not a good king, King David, good king, his son, Solomon, good king. But then after Solomon, the kingdom gets divided. It gets divided. There's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And if you look at this map, it'll actually make sense. You look around and down here, this is where the Philistines were. 
So they, now you know, well, they were real close. This is why you read about the Philistines attacking and David going up against Goliath, the Philistine. Now, the story that we're going to deal with today, actually, you got to know some backstory. Because the people of God come out of a lineage. Abraham starts it all off. Abraham, then God, as a very old man, promises him a child. They have, as, as somebody who's old, they have Isaac. And then Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And if you know the story, that doesn't go real peaceful. Jacob is a conniving younger brother. He's manipulative. He wants what his older brother has. He wants the birthright. He wants to be the leader of the family. And Isaac doesn't seem too concerned with it. Actually sells the birthright in a moment of weakness for a cup of soup. And out of that moment, this division grows in what was united. What was good and healthy because of that lust and desire for what somebody else has, all of a sudden there's division. Now, if you look in the bottom over here next to the eastern de desert, there's Edom right below Moab. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. So you've got Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel came out of Jacob. But the Edomites came out of his brother. And there's a lot of, even after that moment, there's tension between those families. And so the northern kingdom is taken over by the Assyrians. And then in 589, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar conquers Judah and Jerusalem. Now, this is so important because what happens there? They actually lay siege to the city. They surround the city, and for weeks and months, they cut off the flow of goods into the city. Literally, families died of starvation as Nebuchadnezzar choked the life out of the people of God. And as Babylon sieged Jerusalem, the Edomites just simply watched and eventually plundered. Obadiah is a book about the powerful and the vulnerable. And I don't know if you're paying attention to the world that we live in right now, but this is still a conversation that we're having, isn't it? Can I, I'm just going to wade into something and make everybody mad for a second, okay? A few weeks ago, the Supreme Court over, overturned the longstanding tradition of Roe versus Wade, okay, reverting back to the states. And if you've watched, what's really happened is that the two sides of that are arguing about who's most vulnerable. You've got one side that's saying women are vulnerable. And it's true, they are. That women in, in the, and we would say this in, in, our, in our context, in, in the context of sexual sin, women are vulnerable to carry out the long-term effects. Two people who got together and just moments later, that was sinful. We shouldn't have done that and, and repent. But, but the guy walks off, but the girl is left with 
the, the effects of that. More vulnerable. And more vulnerable in the sense that they're often left to the power dynamics of a relationship where they are weaker. And there are men who use that dynamic to force themselves on. And so there's one side arguing they're vulnerable. Why can't we take care of them? And then you've got another side that's saying, but the unborn baby is a human being and they're vulnerable. We can tell that life is viable at 20 plus weeks in the womb. There's a heartbeat and they feel pain. They have all that. They're vulnerable. And what's happening is that we're pitting. It's not, can I, can I just say, it's not one or the other. It's both. And as a church, from when we didn't have any money to give, when we started 10 years ago, I made a decision that our church would give money to support young women who find themselves in crisis moments when they don't know what to do and they don't have anybody to go to, and they're left with the effects of a bad decision, and we've given money to help support them and help walk through that and help provide care. And I'd just say this. If you're amening and, 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 and celebrating that the overturn of that, you, you need to put your money where your mouth is, and you need to be the kind of person, I'm going to support some women. It's a conversation about the vulnerable. And Obadiah is a book about those who have power to do something and never did it. And those who are vulnerable. In the, and, and as a matter of fact, it's a very detailed prophecy against Edom and against the Edomites. And it starts with pride. It starts with an issue of pride. I want you to look in Obadiah, and this is going to be in verse 3. Look at how it really, this is how it starts after kind of all the address and all the beginning of the book. Look at what it says. The pride of your heart deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? The pride of your heart has deceived you. The Edomites prided themselves as being the hill people. They were awfully proud of being the people who lived in the heights. And there's a truth to that, that there's an advantage. Military uh, tacticians would say that there's a distinct advantage, especially in that time, of having the higher ground. And politically, is not being a very large nation, the Edomites had navigated politics through alliances. And historically, they had had an alliance with Israel because their families came out of the same place and their God was the same God. But something changed when Babylon showed up. In verse 4, the next verse says, Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Which reminds us that there's sometimes that the people who are living literally the opposite of what God would have them to do look like they're winning the war. But God reminds us 
No. I'm the one in charge. And he says over them, you might look like you're winning right now, but I will bring you down. The Edomites had chosen to switch their alliance to Babylon. And in doing so, they declared that instead of trusting the power of God, I will trust that national power. I want you to see this about pride. Pride will cause you to trust the wrong power. Pride in your heart will cause you to trust and believe in the wrong power. We are the people of God. There are things in this world that some of us trust supremely that will not last forever. It's easy to start to trust in the wrong path. I just need those friends. If I could just get to be friends with them, if we could spend some time together, if they could, if my boss could just notice me, if my boss could finally see that I'm doing a good job, if I could finally become the favorite at work, if my political party's candidate could just get elected, then we'd all be okay. We'd all be right. And it begs the question, who really has power? Who really has power? It's actually such a pervasive question that I believe our culture is asking that question over and over again. Because whoever has power has responsibility. And therefore, they need to be held accountable. Who do I blame for inflation? It's got to be the president, right? Who do I blame for social issues like racial prejudice? Who do I blame? It's, it's got to be those people. They, they, they just can't. Who do I blame for the fear and the insecurity in my own heart? Who do I blame? And I want to spend a moment talking about the common way that our culture answers that question. It's extremely important. If you don't understand this, you'll miss the way that our culture understands power. It comes out of a school of thought that was really created about a hundred years ago. And it's now through kind of its infusion into higher education. It's become the common way that we understand power. It's critical theory. Critical theory asserts that those who have power create systems and structures to keep themselves in power. Power's corruptive. Power's suppressive. Power's abusive. And so if you have power, the only thing that you'll do with that power is try to create a world and a system where those who don't have it, they're going to be suppressed and marginalized. This is why some of us, without even thinking, when we feel oppressed, when we feel like things aren't going our way, we blame the person in charge and we don't blame ourselves. Because we've learned what's their fault. It's all their fault. 
And this is why some of us think that the world would change if just the right person had power. Now, has that been true? Have people been corrupted by power and used power to kind of keep themselves in power? Absolutely, yes. But is that universally true? Absolutely not. I want you to see this about power, and this is important in the context of Obadiah. Power amplifies the sinful effects of pride. You give somebody that's got the sin issue of pride, more power, and all it does is amplify the sinful effects in their heart. That's what happens. It's a megaphone to the sin of the soul. Is power innately evil? No, it's not. But does power amplify sin? Yes, it does. There are things in our lives that without even knowing them, when they show up in their inner, they literally amplify the effects of our soul. And if things aren't right in here, when it shows up, all that happens is things get worse out here. One of those is money. Money is not evil. It's not. As a matter of fact, money is in many ways benign. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So somebody who longs for it, manipulates for it, steals it, the love of money, that is the root of all kinds of evil. But money itself, money will amplify the effects of your soul. You take somebody who loves Jesus, cares deeply about the kingdom of God, and you put a lot of money in their hands, and you go watch them be generous and make a difference, go pay off the power bill from some single moms. I'm telling you, I've seen God put resources in the hands of some people who love him and watched him make massive difference. But you put a lot of money in the hands of somebody who's prideful and sinful, and you watch them make it all about them. It just amplifies the effects of their heart. Go back, Jacob and Esau. A manipulative younger brother who just wants his place that really belongs to his brother. What happened in that family? Pride and it tore him apart. And now literally decades later, we're reading about the affects of that fracture in that family. Pride will wreck the good gifts God gives you. If you let it live, pride will wreck your finances. If you let it live in your family, pride will wreck your family. If you let it live in your relationships, it will wreck your relationships. And if you let it stay long enough inside you, it will wreck you and your body. Pride wrecks the good gifts that God gives you. And you watch it literally happen in this story. So where does power come from? I want you to see this is so important to the context of the Bible. God is the source of all power and authority. God is. Is power innately evil? No. How could it be? Because God describes himself as being all-powerful. And if our God, who holds all power, is good, power is not evil. Jesus said in Matthew 28, look at this, 
all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, I know a lot of people who aren't even deists in their worldview who would say Jesus was the epitome of good. And here he is saying, listen, I've got all all the authority has been given. Do you notice that word? The co-creator of the universe doesn't, I don't own it. It's been given to me. If anyone has power or authority, it's been given to them by God. And y'all need to, some of y'all parents need to hear this. Because some of y'all, y'all have lived through this. You've got authority and power in your kids' lives, but for a time. There's a purpose for it. And there's a countdown clock on what that looks like. God wants you to use it for the right means. Anyone who has power or authority has been given it, which means that when we have influence, we've been given influence. When we have power in an organization, we've been given that power. And a lot of times what happens in the hearts of some people who are prideful and sinful is they have the gift of authority. They have the gift of power and they start trusting their power more than they trust God. Humility does not trust the gift. Humility trusts the giver. Because humility knows, I don't deserve this. It's only here for a little while. It's not always going to be, I'm not always going to have this place. It all came from God anyway. I trust him. It's been given to me. Romans 13 says this about Authority. I want you to see this. There is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. It's so important to know that God holds all power and he distributes it in the way that he sees fit. And our job in life in many ways is to find those that God has said, listen, that's the authority. I want you to live under that. They're not going to be perfect. You're going to learn from their mistakes. And then for us to go there and to be submissive and honoring to those who have authority in our lives. But it's so easy to trust the wrong power. It's so easy to trust the wrong voice. That's what Edom did. In the moment of that, that kind of decision, when Babylon shows up, instead of coming in to, to help out, Edom looked to the wrong power. And look at what Obadiah says in verse 11. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off Jacob's wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Now, did Edom attack? Did they show up and lay siege to the city? No, they didn't. What'd they do? They did nothing. They did nothing. How many times have you sensed God? I want you to reach out to them and just tell them that they're on your minds, that you're praying for them. You see them, they're, they're going through a hard time. 
won't you show up and pray for them? How many times have you sensed God telling you to get involved, but instead you just laid back and did nothing? Having the power to help and doing nothing shows you're trusting the wrong power. And that's exactly where Edom was. They could have showed up for their brothers, but they didn't show up. They just watched. And in the next verse, watch what happens. You didn't march or you should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. What did they do? They didn't just watch. They showed up. They started walking through. Hey, weren't we looking for one of these? Yeah, let's take it with us. Look at this over here, didn't we? This is nice. The Edomites plundered the people of God after the Babylonian attack. They, They just went through and plundered what was left. And why is that an issue? Because when they stole, they stole what belonged to God. And it begs for us. It begs the question, who owns what's in our hands? The stuff that's in our hands today, who owns it? Who owns it? Who owns our possessions? Our house and our our car and all the things that are in our house and our who owns it? In Matthew 19, Jesus tells a story. It's about a young man who had a lot of wealth. And he comes to Jesus. Jesus, I've heard you talking about this life. I want to live this life that you're talking about. What do I need to do? And Jesus intentionally quotes from the second commandment on. Well, don't lie and don't steal and, you know, don't commit murder. And he looks at him, I've I've done those since I was a boy. I've done those since I was a child. But Jesus intentionally left out the first commandment, which Martin Luther said the other commandments of God are given for just so that we would know that we broke the first one. And the first commandment is have no other God. So Jesus looks at him and the Bible records in Matthew 19 that he looked at him and loved him. And he said, well, go take everything that you've got, sell the money. Give all the money to the poor and then come follow me. And the man walked away with his head hung low because his possessions had taken possession of his heart. I think that's such a sad story because that's a story that in many ways could be told about many of us. That our possessions have taken possession of our hearts. See, a man possessed by his possessions cannot possess the kingdom of God. Who owns what's in my hands? My possessions? God owns it. This is why this is such a big deal when the Edomites come to plunder. Who owns the people in my lives? Can we just ask that question? Who owns the... And some of y'all are going, owns the people? What are you talking about? Well, Let's just talk about how some of us act. 
The Bible gives us two postures that we can take in this world. One is ownership and the other one is stewardship. Ownership, it's mine. It's going to go the way I want it to. Stewardship, it belongs to God. I want it to go the way God wants it to. If it's mine, I'm going to have a different way of thinking about it. With stewardship, I'm trying to understand obedience. God, how do I obey you? How do I obey you in my finances? I want to be a good steward of that. How do I obey you in my relationships? I want, a good, I want to be a good steward of my relationships. But when you own it, you try to control it. A tendency to control is an internal cue that you've tried to take ownership over somebody else because they need to be doing what I think they need to be doing. You need to do it my way. If y'all would all just do it my way, we'd all be better off. Ownership. But the sad truth is you don't own nobody. You don't own your spouse or your kids. It's a relationship to some degree that you've been given to manage. And the only thing that you can do there is to be obedient. Who owns the people in my life? God does. Who owns the power and authority I have? We've already been through that. We saw that it all comes from God. So who owns what's in our hands? God owns it all. God owns it all. Who owns the stuff that's in my hands, the possessions, the people in my life, the power or the authority? God owns it all. This is why stealing is found in the Ten Commandments. Because stealing is such a high-level sin. It doesn't recognize that God in His wisdom and love for somebody else gave them what they have. And so now, out of my lust and my manipulation, I'm going to try to take what God gave to them and try to seize it and make it mine. But this is why envy and jealousy and comparison are such deadly sins as well because they all find their roots in the same place. Not in being content with what I have, but lusting after what somebody else has. The Edomites did nothing, but then they showed up to take possession of what had been left behind. And as Obadiah continues his prophecy against Edom, he really shows us that the power of God is going to come. And he says this in verse 15, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you for your deeds will return upon your own head. The power of God makes some promises in the book of Obadiah. And one of those is God's power promises to make wrong things right. God promises to make wrong things right. There are some of us that have some wrong things in our life right now. And I want you to know that God promises in the things that are broken and lost in this world to bring justice to it. Why does God want that? He wants it because He loves you. 
when you've been wronged, when something has happened to you, God wants to bring justice. He wants to make the wrong things right. I love the song that we looked at today, Fix You. came out in 2005 from Coldplay. Chris Martin wrote it in 2003 when Gwyneth Paltrow, his wife at the time, had lost her father. And as she was mourning, there were a couple songs that were Coldplay songs that she just played over and over and over as a kind of process for her grief. And he wanted to write a song that was more joyful, more hopeful. And actually wrote it intentionally, originally, and, and set it in, in the setting of a church. That, that's where the original design of the soundscape, it was going to be big pipe organs and a, a, a lot of, it would feel real choral and orchestral as it, it kind of built towards that bridge at the end. And then they went, such a good story, went to visit her home after her father had died. They found an old keyboard that her dad had gave her when she was a kid. And he pulled it out and plugged it up and he started playing. And he's like, no. We'll use this. We'll use this keyboard. And that's what they used. That's where the, the sounds on all the tracks came from. From that little keyboard that her dad had gave her when she was a kid. In that... There's a line that many of us have felt when we, we've watched somebody that we love suffer and to go through things that were, were wrong, that we long to see ba- be made right. And that line is, I will try to fix you. Emphasis on the word, try. Because as much as we long, there are things in this world that we cannot fix. And that realization is remarkably freeing. Because God ultimately is the one who makes the wrong things right. And it means that we do not have to administer justice. It's not my job. It's not my job to make things that are wrong right. It's not my job to fix it all. It's not my job to show up and pay back where I've been done wrong. Romans 12 says this, do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right. That's your job. Do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, which means there's going to be times that for them, they don't want peace. And so when that's the case, the only choice is distance. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Real quickly, simply, do what God requires and trust God 
to make things right. Do the right thing. Be obedient. Listen to God and then leave the results up to God. You ain't got to get back at nobody else. Somebody in this world does you wrong. Somebody says something bad about you. It is not your job to go put them on blast and then try to repay them with what they've paid you back with. No, you're not trying to do that. I'm just going to trust God to take care of it. I'm going to do what's right. Your job is obedience. God's job is justice. But I need to remind you of this because some of us forget this. What's right by God and right by you might not be the same thing. The Bible says at the end of Romans that it is the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. And there might be times that you're saying, God, I wish you'd just pay them back. And God's going, I'm going to show them my kindness in this because that is what will turn their hearts. In the end, the book of Obadiah is a book that asks us a lot of questions specifically about trust. It asks us, will you trust the way that God distributes power? We trust it. We stop telling the world that if the right people had power, it'd all be fixed. You do that. I just want you to know you've bought into a worldly system. Will you trust God with what's in your hands? Stop trying to control it. Stop trying to manipulate it. Stop thinking that it all has to go your way. God, I just want you to win in my family. I want you to win in my finances. Will you trust God with what's in your hands? And will you trust God to make wrong things right? All of us have some stuff in our life that's a little wrong and a little broken right now. Will you trust God to make it right? Ultimately, ultimately, it's just really a simple question. Will you trust God with it? And the it for every person in this room is different. Will you trust God with the outcome of that thing that you've been praying about and you don't know how it's going to turn out? Will you trust God with that relationship that feels like it's just broken? It feels lost? Will you trust God with your business when the world seems like it's upside down and nothing's going right? Will you trust God with that decision that you knew you needed to make it, but you don't know how it's going to turn out? Will you trust God with your kids when you see them walking down a path that you're not real excited about? Will you trust God with your marriage, with your money? Will you trust God with it? Because I don't know if you see what I see. But I see that he's got a better way than me. He knows more than I do. And ultimately, I don't, I don't want to win. I want him to win. Because if he wins, he loves me enough that I'm going to win. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.